Well, shalom, everyone. This is Dr. Dina Dye, and I am missing my other half this evening, Jeff Morton. Jeff, say hi. Hi. He can't talk. So Jeff is in bed, sicker than a dog. I uh, came home from his time with his family in New York. They, of course, uh, had a memorial service for his brother. And I uh, ended up in the emergency room. So I think he's got one of those terrible upper respiratory viral infections, which there's not a whole lot can be done other than sleep. Rest, drink lots of fluids. Jeff, are you listening? Take care of yourself and, you know, apply all kinds of essential oils, <laughs> whatever works. Do the colloidal silver thing. I'm trying to remember everything I did to get better. Anyways, we just hope and pray you get better soon. Um, it's hard being solo here and listening to myself babble on for 30 minutes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to you getting back. Uh, anyways, uh, it's been an interesting day for me, and uh, let me just say some masks for everyone who's ready to go with forum here. Uh, I'm going to share a little bit about that tonight, and uh, the context is going to be some some from my book. But uh, I was watching the Amazon rankings today for my book. Um, I've been doing a lot of promo. I was very grateful, uh, Rico Cortez had a very nice post in which he said it was one of the best books he's read in quite some time. So that got things stirring and a lot of people purchased the book. But at one point today, um, so normally I, I put uh, the listing in with Messianic Judaism. But this time uh, I'm not just with the Create Space Amazon, but I also went with another company called Ingram Spark, and so I had a little bit of the categories were a bit different. And one of the categories was Christ, uh, Christian Bible history and culture, so I put the book in there. So it showed up today uh, at number two in that particular category, with the book by N.T. Wright being number one. And I thought, well, I'm in pretty good company if I'm number two right behind N.T. Wright. He just happens to be one of my favorite scholars. Uh, I love that guy. Well, lo and behold, a little later on in the day, turns out that my book was number one and his was number two. So I took a screenshot of that, and you can best believe that screenshot is going to remain with me forever. And if I ever run into him, I will show him. Uh, the book is also number one in Messianic Judaism right now for new releases. Uh, let me back up that other category was for new releases as well. And then in the uh, regular bestsellers for Messianic Judaism, the book came in at number two today. And my other book was number ten. So, yeah, lots of activity. And uh, for me, it's really exciting. It's kind of, you know, I've been at this book for for a year plus, so to see the fruit of my labor has been very exciting. The last thing I want to mention for all of you who do listen to the to the radio broadcast, one of the most important things that you can do for me with the book is to write a review on Amazon. So I follow a lot of interesting authors, best-selling authors, and they always say sometimes the reviews are even more important than the sales. So what I'm going to do this time, I'm going to give you a free DVD, if you would be so kind as to write a review on Amazon for me. Now make sure you send me an email with your address, because I won't know. Sometimes people have fake names or you know other names they use on Amazon so people don't know who they are. <clears throat> so there's no way I, I will know, but uh, the, the, it's a 
30-minute DVD. It's called What It Means to Be King. And so I want to really encourage you, hey, you get a free DVD just for taking a few minutes of your time and writing, writing something. Now, if you don't like the book, please don't bother, okay? This is for all of those who read the book and like the book and uh, at least give it a four or five star rating. Anyways, enough of that, right? So, you know, I was reading, it's so interesting, as you study and you build on your foundation, when you go back and read uh, old, older stories or something you haven't read in a while or something in the Gospels and the Epistles, stuff jumps out like you cannot believe. And I, I honestly have not read the book of Purim, in, uh, excuse me, the book of Esther, in probably since last Purim. So I thought, well, you know, sit down, let's see if there's something in here that I could share with the folks. And as I started reading it, I'm going, oh my goodness, look at all of this ancient Near East language about temple and palace and king, just the context of it. So. I thought I'd bring some of that to light for you. I'm not going through the whole book. I, you know, most of you listening to this know the story quite well, and you've heard plenty of teaching on it. So it's not my intention to bring forth some new dimension of teaching, other than just to show you the, how critical it is when you're studying that you look at the context and culture of the time. So it's, it's absolutely essential. Now, the Book of Esther, of course, is quite interesting. We don't have very much information about sort of Israel, the people in the land there, the rebuilding of the temple, the temple standing. Um, the name of God is not used. And, and a lot of people believe, well, not a lot, but scholars, etc., believe that, that really this is it's not necessarily a story that we need to take literally exactly. I would suggest that this story is really an allegory of, of righteous Israel. Um, think about, you know, you've got to look at the time frame. We're in Circes, we're in the Persian Empire, probably what, around 470 BCE, uh, somewhere in there. And so if we jump ahead a little bit to 515 BCE, uh, under now you know that the Jews were able to go back under Cyrus, but they didn't rebuild the temple. And it wasn't completed till about 515 BCE under Darius. This is quite significant. Uh, people don't think about what's going on in other parts of the world. And so in Jerusalem is, this, is a standing temple. Of course, it doesn't have the glory of the Temple of Solomon. But regardless, there is a standing temple, a functioning priesthood, and things are, go, are moving on. Now remember, most of the Jews did not go back to the land of Israel. They were quite comfortable to stay, uh, of course, in Babylon, and then Babylon was defeated by Persia, and so now it's basically the same sort of, a little larger in scope, but basically the same land mass, and so now we're, we have the Persian Empire. So you think about all the folks that chose not to go back to the land. Now, where is the presence of God? The presence of God would be in the house of God, in, in the temple. And they chose to stay outside of that in exile because they were fat, dumb, and happy, maybe, but they, they chose not to go back. So a lot of what we're seeing that comes upon them here is because of their refusal to go back and, and uh, serve their king, God Almighty. So 
Uh, of course, we have Zerubbabel and Shealtiel and all these various ones, but that's an important consideration in all of this. So again, we're in the time of the Persian kings. Uh, they are pretty much just like all the other ones going back into the ancient Sumerian time and Babylonian. So again, we have language of kingship and, and the ancient, this ancient Near East world. So we have King Xerxes seated on the throne, Persian king, in what's described as the royal throne in the fortress or the citadel of Shushan. So that's uh, ground zero there. And it begins with a banquet. Now, I would just maintain that, you know, if you're going to have a banquet for 180 days, and let me just mention, sometimes when, personally, when I'm studying, I'm looking for information that's missing as much as information that's there. Now, it doesn't tell us very much, but you got to believe it's pretty odd to go and have a 180-day uh, festival of some kind banquet in the third year of King Xerxes, uh, all the court officials are there, the military leaders, etc. And what does he do? He displays the great wealth of his kingdom. Kind of reminds me of someone else, that Hezekiah. Remember when he invited in all the envoys of Babylon and showed them the sacred space. He showed them everything that he had, including the, uh, the house of the forest of Lebanon, which was the armory. And then it wasn't much longer after that when the Babylonians invaded. So here's this 180-day deal. Six months we're talking about. This is a six-month deal. And he is just displaying the glory of his kingdom. I would submit that this looks an awful lot like some type of annual enthronement ritual. So in the ancient world, every New Year's, whenever that fell, so for Israel, that would be Tishrei 1, the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah. But, for instance, in Babylon, in Babylon, they have the Akitu festival, which was in the spring. And that was every year of the king's rule. They had an annual celebration of his coronation. And so it's, it's a uh, rehearsal, a remembrance, a, you know, whatever you do on New Year's Day every year. So it's a time of the enthronement ritual. And, and so we see that's followed by a seven-day banquet. Now, yes, the number seven is a very popular number in the scriptures, always referring to some sort of house dynasty building thing. But here we have, of course, we're in, in Persia, and as I've shared before, there's a number of scholars that have, have shown us that in the ancient Near East world, not just Israel, but all over the uh, Fertile Crescent, the Mesopotamia, Sumer, all those places, the number seven was always tied to temple building, temple dedication. So here we have, again, I would suggest that we're having a, uh, an, a festival of enthronement in the third year of Circes. Now, what's interesting there, it tells us that in the garden court of the king's palace, for all the people who were present, the palace of Shushan for both the greatest to the least. So now it's telling us kind of where this is going on. Now, in every temple in the ancient world, there was always a garden. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this. And this some of this that I, I have actually shared in my book. So um, if you haven't bought, purchased it, please go out and do so. Um, one of the things we find in the ancient world, especially in Mesopotamia, 
um, they what kings what their vocation was was horticulture. They were responsible for in their sacred space for any kind of uh, gardening. In fact, one of the names for a king was the, was the gardener. This is important, and I, some of you bells may be going off for you because you'll recall Yeshua in the garden after he was resurrected from the dead, from the garden tomb. Miriam shows up and she believes that Yeshua is the gardener. So that's not in there for no reason. That is communicating kingship language because all kings in the ancient world were gardeners. So they were responsible to maintain their massive garden complexes around the temple. And it was thought that by maintaining those garden complex, complexes, they literally brought order to that sphere. And they created a very aesthetically beautiful environment for, for them so they could live in with their families. Now, obviously, the, the poor and the, the serfs of the time did not enjoy these gardens, did not experience these gardens. This was from the for the elites, the, the royals, the military, etc. So this is a, this is a big deal where they're having their um, they're having their banquet. And so the, the sovereign's royal gardens always represented his kingdom. They were really synonymous terms, one and the same. And you'll find that the, the royal garden uh, of the king, was considered to be as a, a cosmic temple in miniature. Now, we sure don't look at gardens that way, but that is how the ancients. So it's very, see, again, these are little details in the story that you just blow by and go, well, they were in a garden court and all these people, and we don't even think about what that means. But it's a very significant piece of information. Uh, let me read this to you. This is from a, <clears throat> a guy named William Brown. The book's called Seven Pillars of Creation, and uh, I quote from him in my book. And he, he says, Every king had his garden, and Jerusalem's king was no exception. On the west bank of the Kidron Valley, east of the fortified city, was the king's garden watered by the Gihon Spring. So you find in always in the ancient world with these gardens, you're going to have some kind of water source. Uh, in Jerusalem, you have the Gihon, which was said to be the foundation or the, the fountain of living waters. And of course, in, in Jerusalem, <clears throat> there was no river there. So they, they needed a water supply. And so the Gihon Spring ran intermittently to provide water for the city. Of course, later on, they would build cisterns in order to store that water, so they had uh, the necessary water. And he goes on to say, the royal garden of Jerusalem, the city of God, was in some sense a replication of, or perhaps the basis for, the primordial garden of Eden in Genesis. So you see there's a connection between these gardens and creation, and in this case, in Eden. Um, Brown also explains how uh, the kings in the ancient world were very proud of their horticultural expertise. And uh, it was said in some cases their prowess on the battlefield did not even come close to their prowess in the garden. So what, they, what these kings would do, uh, you know, obviously their MO was to go out and conquer more land and take empires. That's what they did. And so when they uh, conquered another empire and they conquered that king and they took over that palace or that, uh, that garden 
they would transplant their the botanical species that they collected um, from those conquered territories, and they would bring them back to their territory and and replant them. So this that was that was significant. That was making a statement that that they ruled and everyone was under their sovereignty. And again, this was all part of their sort of green thumb thing. Now think about Solomon for just a minute and why all the emphasis on garden-type language with the first temple. And it, it tells us that, that uh, Solomon possessed knowledge of botany. That's very interesting that that's in there. Again, you would just read that and go, oh, well, okay. He has knowledge of botany and he spoke in depth of trees from talking about the cedar of Lebanon and the hyssop that grew in the wall. But you, now you understand that kings took great pride in their horticultural skills and that knowledge of, of the gardening horticultural world was everything back then. Uh, it tells us that when Solomon was uh, building the temple, he, uh, he carved the walls inside with a lot of ornamentation. So we've got cedar wood buds and flowers that are open, of course the, the cherubim, the cherubim, and there's palm trees that are carved in there. And the palm tree was seen as the royal tree. Uh, we find this in, I believe it was in Mari, in uh, ancient Mesopotamian area, that they used the, the royal palm was what would be planted in the garden. And uh, so we find also in, uh, in the temple planks of cypress, olive wood, etc., etc. So this makes it very, uh, when we're reading in Ecclesiastes, and this is in chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. Now normally we would just read this and say to ourselves, isn't that lovely and poetic? So hopefully you'll see this is a little more concrete. So this is Solomon speaking, and he says that I, I increased my possessions, I built myself houses, and I planted myself vineyards. So see all this garden language. I made royal gardens and parks for myself and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I constructed for myself pools of water to irrigate a forest of flourishing trees. So again, that's the, that has great significance when we begin to understand what kings, what was important to kings and how they were viewed in the ancient world. Now some of you will remember King Nebuchadnezzar who uh, famously built these, uh, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I remember back, I think I was in grade 8 when I did my first speech ever and I did a speech on the seven wonders of the ancient world and you know you always remember your first speech. I was nervous as all get out but I do remember significantly talking about King Nebuchadnezzar's Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So these uh, the, he built these gardens obviously for himself, for you know his elites, but also for his consort. And uh, it was said the, these particular gardens were like a, on a rooftop, and so they looked, they resembled a large mountain, and, and in that mountain they, they made terraces, and each of the terraces had uh, sun-baked brick columns. And so the trees were rooted in the soil and they filled the columns and so it gave the gardens a, a, a hanging appearance. Now there's never been any evidence, we've never found anything to prove his particular gardens but uh, a number of scholars, one in particular Stephanie Dolly has said that 
it's a possibility this was a reference to King Sennacherib of Nineveh, that the gardens were speaking of, uh, of him. So we don't know, but again, another king. So now the Persian gardens, to what we're addressing here, um, and really most of the other areas as well, were designed along what we call a central axis. So the vertical axis, which would be a tree called the world pillar or the world tree. And the idea was to construct something along a central axis was axis was to create what they called cosmic symmetry. So I mentioned earlier one of the central features then of, of a garden, for instance, was the royal tree. And it formed like a column or a pillar. And the idea was it was an architectural element in the garden and with, with its function being to hold up the heavens. Is kind of interesting. Um, this is a quote from John Walton, and it goes along with everything I've been sharing. <clears throat> he says that the garden adjoins God's residence in the same way that a garden of a palace adjoins the palace. Eden is the source of water and the residence of God. The text describes a situation that was well known in the ancient world, a sacred spot featuring a spring with an adjoining well, water, uh, adjoining well watered park stocked with specimens of trees and animals. So again, uh, also, I mean, consider when Israel was in the wilderness. You remember they, uh, they needed water and Moses hit the water, uh, hit the rock with the staff and the water came gushing out. And so there was uh, the idea that wherever there is sacred space, there is uh, the inner sanctum for the god. There is where the priest serves. There's an adjacent garden of some kind and a water source to, to water that garden. And, you know, you have to wonder in the wilderness situation, they're making a tabernacle from trees, from planks. And so where on earth did that come from? So just another thought on that. So that's, you know, I've just shared with you, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, just about one little verse here in the, in the first chapter of Esther, just to get you to see and to get you to think past, our, you know, we, we get blocked and then we, hopefully this kind of makes that whole scenario, uh, give it a little depth. Um, you know, without going into, like I said, I don't have time to go into the whole book, obviously, but we have also like temple language that follows the, the weaving of white and blue linen curtains hung by cords of fine linen and purple and marble columns and gold and silver couches on mosaic pavement of alabaster. This is straight out of temple language. So typically the throne, wherever the throne was placed, would be on some, some type of pavement. Um, in this case, it's described as alabaster now. Think about Moses on the mountain in the Holy of Holies in the inner sanctum with God. Do you remember how uh, the, the pave, there was pavement there? Do you remember how it was described? It was described as sapphire pavement. So this is quite common as well. And it talks about mother of pearl minerals, etc. Um, if you were in the temple, second temple period, and you were in the uh, out, outer courtyard area or you were in the dormitory of the priests or whatever, uh, everything, there was pavement, and uh, this was very common in the temples. 
describing you know wine being served in golden goblets and then it talks about having this covenant meal and again I I would suggest if you were having a enthronement rehearsal or a celebration annual New Year's celebration part of that would include the covenant meal with the wine and uh, I thought it was interesting that the, the royal it, it describes the royal wine being abundant and this was according to the king's wealth. And I personally couldn't help but think of Yeshua at the wedding at Cana. Remember the, the wine? He brought out the, the good wine. And it was in abundance and it never ran dry kind of thing. So this, again, that's, that's language of kingship. Um, so you remember Vashti rejected the king. Uh, and this was on the seventh day. So we got more of that seventh day language. Now her responsibility was to help build the dynasty of the king. So she's basically refusing to do that because really the the main reason they married was to produce heirs and sons and build the dynasty. So she's reject not only has she rejected his authority, but she has declared that, that the dynasty through her and King Cersei's would not go forward. Um, that was cut off at that point. So that's kind of significant as well. And, of course, um, Esther comes along, and um, uh, I think probably the last point I'll make, because I'm, I'm already pretty well out of time here, um, it's, I've also found this quite interesting in terms of Esther, uh, Mordecai telling her that if you don't intervene, uh, this will be a plague on you and your father's house, and you're going, well, who's your father's house? We don't know anything about it. We don't know her heritage. And she purposely did not disclose anything about her lineage to uh, Cersei's, for example. So we know Mordecai was um, taken into exile from Jerusalem under the Babylonians with all the captives. And the, the king at that time, king of uh, Judah, was uh, Yekonia. Sometimes he's called Koniahu or Yekoyachin. He had a pile of names there. Um, but tucked away in there, it talks about her, you know, having really no lineage. But farther down, it'll explain that she, uh, her mother and father died. But of course, we know Mordecai became her, her surrogate father and raised her up. She was, he was, she was his niece. But I, I couldn't help but think again of the language of the ancient world because when, when someone became king, when the son became king, uh, the king the, the, the king who, who appointed the next in line to inherit the throne, it did not have to be his flesh and blood. So for example, King Saul, uh, his son would have been Jonathan. That was who his flesh and blood, firstborn son, would have been the heir and son to the throne, except that that didn't turn out that way. And if you'll recall, King David was now next in line and the son that would be raised up. But when, when a son was raised up to become king, he was described in a way that he had neither mother or father. He was said to be without mother or father um, because no, he no longer had earthly parents. So David no longer, his parents, we don't know who his mother was, but Jesse, being shy, is his father. And he was born to earthly parents. But now that he becomes king, it is as though he has heavenly parents. So I found that quite interesting about Esther because the same description is in there that she doesn't have neither father nor mother, no genealogy. So again, that, 
And I don't have time to go into this either, but ding, 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 you should remember King Melchizedek, Melchizedek, right, from Hebrews, who was without beginning or end or genealogy or mother and father, just simply expressing something about being king. So just kind of close this out, uh, you know, I, again, I do think uh, the story of Esther has a lot, is an allegory and it has a lot to do with those of Israel who are righteous, who are seen as married to the king and uh, interceding on behalf of the rest of the nation, uh, stepping up. Now, where is righteous Israel? You know, quote, unquote, they're back in the land of the temple. Those that chose to return to the land of Israel um, because they sought an audience with the king in real time. Verse, now, we you know Esther goes before the king. So she, they're one and the same versus what we have in exile the ones that refuse to go back because where is the presence of God? The presence of God resides in the temple. Anyways, um, I have run out of time and uh, hopefully I've just given you a few little tidbits here. Uh, my goal always is to help you think outside the box, um, consider other angles, and uh, let's not be so dogmatic and locked in our theology and doctrine that we can't consider other ways of looking at that. So that's those are my thoughts on Purim. So Sameach Purim, and uh, hopefully we will see you next week. Thanks for joining me. Shalom.